Revelation chapter 8. <clears throat> when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked. And I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. <clears throat> Amen. My preparation, I read the story how in ancient Krakow, the ancient capital of Rome, of Poland rather, there is a church in the market square and this church has two towers. And from the tower a trumpeter used to play a fanfare every hour. It was called the Hedgno. It was repeated four times but always ended abruptly on a broken note. And the reason for that was one day, years before, as the trumpet applied, he saw in the distance a cloud of dust which grew bigger and bigger approaching the city. It was a large army galloping towards the city. And this army had previously destroyed and burned and looted and murdered and carried off the young people to be slaves in their camps. The trumpeter was faced with a decision. How could he warn the city? How could he convey to the people that there was danger approaching and give them time to prepare their defense? He decided that there wasn't time to go into the city and warn the people. And so he thought he would play the hedgenal or him over and over and over again. 
At first, the people of Krakow was, were puzzled, but they quickly realized that this must be a warning and that from his tail, he had seen danger approaching. And so the soldiers sprung into action and took up arms on their stations on the walls of the city. The wives and children were sent home and they stayed indoors. And suddenly, the hymn ceased abruptly. The trumpeter had been shot in the throat by an arrow. But his task was accomplished and Krakow was saved. Thanks to his warning, the people were able to defend the city. And since that day, the hymn has been broken off at the same note on which it was broken off when the trumpeter was shot by the arrow in honor of him who gave his life for the city. The seventh seal in chapter 8 begins the seven trumpets of God, which are instruments of alarm and warnings to the world. They are warnings to the world of things which will take place in an effort to call people to repentance. Now you wonder why there is the mention of these seven trumpets. But trumpets in the Bible are seen for different purposes. For example, it announces the arrival of God on Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Moses. Trumpets are used to summon people. Numbers 10 tells us that how Israel was summoned before the Lord in the tent of meeting. Trumpets also signal the good news of the king's coronation. And no doubt we'll see that again when King Charles' is, uh, is, uh, his coronation takes place. And Paul tells us that when the Lord Jesus comes again, that it will be with a loud trumpet blast, 1 Thessalonians 4. But what trumpets also do is that they bring warnings. When Joshua brought down the walls of Jericho, trumpets were blown for seven days, and on the seventh day the walls fell and the city was taken. And if you look at the prophet Joel, Joel gives out warnings and speaks of an army of locusts which anticipates, and we'll see this when we come to the fifth trumpet in chapter 9, it anticipates what John has to say in our text with regards to the fifth trumpet. And so the trumpet here in Revelation sound, and they do so for a specific reason. They are warnings to those who don't know Christ, to those who don't know the Lamb, to those who are not sealed as we saw in the previous chapter. And here these chapters depict the most appalling catastrophes that come upon the world. And so it's not surprising that the chapter opens, as we saw last week, telling us that there is silence in heaven. Silence as there is awe and a sense of solemnness because of who God is and what he is going to release upon the earth. The saints in heaven sense the holiness and the justice of God in what God is about to reveal to them. And John tells us their mouths are shut. And as you study the text, you realize that what John has to say is pretty scary. It's scary because of what is to be released on the world by way of judgment. And notice in verse 3 to 5, that it is the prayers of the saints that moves God to act in judgment. 
And we saw that in our previous messages, how the saints cry out to God. God will finally answer many of the prayers of the saints. But here John sees an angel who stands at the altar and he's holding this golden censer. A golden altar is mentioned in Exodus 30 and it is the, at the altar of incense in the holy place. Many believe that the angel who stands before the altar is the Lord Jesus. I wouldn't concur with that because in the Greek it says an angel of another kind. And uh, certainly the Lord Jesus isn't an angel as some of the sects would have us believe. But here he is given much incense to add to the prayers of the saints. And what's happening here, as I said, he is responding to the cry of the martyrs in chapter 6 and verse 10, where they cried to God, How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And after all their cries, God is about to answer. So the angel hurls the incense mixed with the prayers of the saints down to the earth. God hears the prayers of his people. He's attentive to their cry. He responds to that cry in this way. And judgment is about to be released. The trumpets are to sound and the scene shifts to earth. And so this chapter deals with the sounding of the first four uh, of seven trumpets. Can you bring the other slide up please, Callum? That's it. Thank you. And here the first four trumpets seem to belong together and that's what I want to look at this morning, the first four trumpets that's mentioned in chapter 8. And they seem to belong together just as in chapter 6 the seals belong together, the first four seals belong together that releases the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And following the first four trumpets there is a pause as we found in verse 1. There is a pause before the fifth and the sixth is also released in chapter 9. And you have to wait till chapter 11 to come to the seventh trumpet. But here, after chapter 8, after the first four uh, trumpets are released, we are told that an eagle calls out. And we hear him say that the worst is yet to come. Worse to come by way of judgment upon the unbelieving world. And this eagle, notice how he repeats the word woe three times. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. When the Bible wants to emphasize something, it generally repeats a word twice. So for example, when Jesus is teaching, he would say something along the lines of truly, truly, I say to you, Amen, Amen, I say to you. Or if you're into the King James Version, Verily, verily, I say to you. But here the word woe is repeated three times. There is only one other place in, in the Bible where a word is repeated three times, and that's in Isaiah chapter 6, where the holiness of God is emphasized, and Isaiah sees the seraphim, and hears the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And here the eagle says, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because the trumpet blasts about to be sounded, because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels following the first four. It seems to say that what the four trumpets reveal is nothing compared to that which is yet to come. 
So as I've pointed out before, the things spoken of here speak of what is happening in our world now, what will also happen in the future before Christ comes again. For example, as we saw in the sixth seal, we, we were told, and you might remember that, that the sun and moon were changed and stars fell down to earth. But here the fourth trumpet highlights that the sun, moon and stars are restricted and they give out a third of their light, something they cannot do if they were destroyed as the, as the, as the seals pointed out. And so what I'm saying is that these things aren't to be taken in some sort of chrono chrono chronological order. You may also be asking the question as to why if in chapter 6, after speaking of the final judgment in chapter 6, we now have seven trumpets and the seven bowls are yet to come and they also speak of judgment. How can judgment follow judgment? How can judgment follow a final judgment as we saw in chapter 6? Well, to put it simply, the passages aren't dealing with some sort of chronological order. These chapters reveal the total package of judgment. Rather, they are part of a total package. They are intertwined where God is sending out warnings as he has been during the time of the tribulation. But what will happen is, as I said before, this, these judgments will intensify as time goes on and lead to the final judgment before the Lord Jesus comes again. You, rem you may remember that the seals spoke of one-fourth of things that would be destroyed. What does our chapter say here about the trumpets? We told that one-third will be destroyed. And when you get to the bowls in chapter 16, you find that it's 100%. So there's a progression, one-fourth, one-third, 100% when we come to the bowls. It highlights the intensity of things which have and will take place over many years before the Lord returns. So let's look at the first trumpet. Now I'll put the text on the screen because I don't want to read the text. You'll have to follow with me as I go on. What does the first trumpet reveal? And I want to be very brief on each one of them or we'll be here till dinner time tonight. John sees hail and fire mixed with blood and it's thrown to the earth. It's simply saying that God brings this and it consumes a third of its vegetation, even the grass upon it, probably speaking of the grain crops, uh, crops and famine that come as a result of it. I said last week that what we're having in these chapters is a reversal of creation. Because in creation, what God created was perfect and good and beautiful. But ever since the fall, the creation has been in a state of decline, hasn't it? To use the words of the Apostle Paul, creation is groaning. And here we find that there's only devastation sent, to, sent upon the creation. Also, with what takes place here, we are reminded of the plagues in Egypt where hail mixed with fire or lightning came upon the Egyptians, their animals, and their crops. Now remember, as I've said time and time again, that in Revelation there is constant reference to the Old Testament. Now, of course, what's mentioned here in the first trumpet can also refer to war. In ancient times, fire was used as a strategy of war. Cities were destroyed by fire or crops were burnt out in an effort to bring about famine. 
to starve the people out. Perhaps this is why John sees blood mixed with hail and fire, the blood simply referring to death. And hail can cause death as can fire, and not just to people, but to animals and to vegetation as well. Living as we do in Australia, we know all about it, don't we, what fires can do. Jesus says we can expect these things not just in Australia, but globally. But what I want to highlight is that all the trumpet judgments are only partial judgments, at least here in chapter 8 and 9. Did you notice that? The full judgment is yet to come. A third of the earth was burnt up. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the rivers and so on. What's John saying to us? What's the Lord Jesus saying to us? Simply that judgment isn't complete. God is saying there is still time for people to repent and escape the final judgment. In other words, there is grace mixed with judgment. In his wrath, the Lord remembers mercy. So that the message is that you know Christ, the Lamb of God, whom Revelation speaks about, that you know him in your life. And I'll say more about that in a moment. But then we come to the second trumpet. John says he saw something like a great mountain that was ablaze, thrown into the sea, and it's turning into blood, resulting in a third of the creatures of the sea dying and a third of the ships being destroyed. Now, I hope you realize that some things mentioned in the text can be taken literally, while other things definitely can't. For example, it's not a literal mountain that John is speaking about. He says it's like a mountain, or the third of the sea turning into blood. Now, you'd realize that if you mix blood with water, it's not going to be confined to a third. It would permeate all of the water. So what I'm saying is that the Lord is speaking through signs and symbols. The futurist view and so on. The preterists interpret this as uh, this mountain as referring to Jerusalem that was burnt by the Romans. The futurists say that the mountain refers to a kingdom or earthly power, and there is biblical warrant to interpret it in that way. For example, we see that in Daniel, where a big stone gathers uh, momentum, and it's speaking about the kingdom of Babylon being destroyed, and so on. And perhaps there is merit in some of these views. But one question we should ask is, what would it say, not only to the early church, but to the church throughout history, to you and me today as well? And the point we would make from all the trumpet warnings is that we see these happenings as happenings throughout history with the devastation that has taken place and which will take place in time to come. We know we've had kingdoms rise and fall. We've had fires. We've had, we've had earthquakes. We've had famine. We had tsunamis. We had stock market crashes, wars, and so on. All these things that John has mentioned here have been happening throughout history from the time that John wrote Revelation and also before that with an ever-increasing intensity. And so, for example, I'm sure this would have been foremost in the mind of John as he wrote these things because in AD 79, uh, what happened was the city of Pompeii was buried by a volcanic eruption, the eruption of Vesuvius, 
which devastated the, the Bay of Naples. Also, the early church could relate to some of the things mentioned here. Why do I say that? Because to know the history of the time is to realize that Rome ruled the world. Rome was Babylon. It was the Babylon of John's time. And is referred to as Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitute, prostitutes. And I'll come to that in the next few months as we go through the book. You see, Babylon stands for immorality. And for the seven churches of Revelation, Rome was the source of idolatry. We saw that in the seven letters with the pressure it brought to bear on God's people with emperor worship and so on as it set up idolatry in, the society, in society. And so here with the destruction that the second trumpet speaks of, many see it as being that of Rome's sea trade that would be affected greatly affected through battles of, at sea or natural disasters and hence the waters turning into blood and so on. Read Revelation 18 verse 16 and following as it speaks of Babylon and its sea trade. So the bottom line is this is a warning of judgment. Like Rome who brought persecution to bear upon the people of God, God will judge all those who persecute his people, he will judge all those who are outside of Christ, who, re who have rejected him in their lives and seek to hinder the work of the kingdom. What about the third trumpet? It mentions uh, this star that falls from heaven. Now we sh shouldn't be thinking of some sort of, sort of meteor falling from to the earth or that this star named Wormwood um, refers to the Chernobyl disaster that took place in the Ukraine in 1986 because Chernobyl means Wormwood in the Ukrainian language and so on. I think that would be to stretch the imagination a bit too far. But what we could say with a degree of certainty is that in speaking of the waters turning bitter through the star falling from heaven, that it simply speaks about cutting off or disrupting the water supply to the city. Wormwood was a bitter herb. And so it's saying that it will embitter the waters, making it undrinkable. It will be poisonous. In other words, it affects the source of something that's vital and crucial for life and that is the water that we drink. Remember the plague of blood and the Nile? What happened? It made it impossible, didn't it, for the Egyptians to drink that water. And if you wanted to besiege a city, then one of the strategies you would adopt is to cut off its water supply. And so the trumpets speak of judgment through people being deprived of the basic necessity of life something we today take for granted when we turn on a tap and we have water flowing. And then very briefly notice the fourth trumpet. Again the comparison to the plague in Egypt is noticeable. We're told darkness came over the land for three days but here in the text we see the sun, moon and stars and they don't give out their full light. And I guess such darkness could be caused by smoke, dust, or volcanic ash that the previous verses uh, speak about. 
which are all products of the seals and the trumpets, the previous judgments. So let's leave the four trumpets at that. More importantly is what does it say to us today? What does this chapter 8 have to say to you and me living in our day and time? I want to highlight two truths by way of application. The first one comes from verses 3 to 5 where we read of the prayers of God's people. And the truth is this very simply that we don't trust in our prayers but we trust in Christ who mediates our prayers. We're told that the angel fills the censer with fire and throws it to the earth. Judgment has been released in response to the prayers of God's people. And so it highlights the fact that our prayers are an important part in our victory over sin and all the opposition we face to the gospel as a church and as God's people in our ministry. But the text also tells us that the angel, whether it's Jesus, we're not told, as I said before, that the angel holds the golden censer and he's given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. It highlights that the prayers of God's people are precious, doesn't it? And the incense speaks of the prayers being pleasing in God's sight. You know, there's nothing like the aroma of coffee brewing. Perhaps first thing in the morning or on a cold winter's night when you're huddled in front of a fire. It tends to stir within me and I just say I want some, I need some. Just smelling the aroma of that coffee. Well the scripture tells us that there is an aroma that really pleases the Lord. But it wasn't simply the fragrance itself that pleased God but what it represented. And we see it here, the prayers of his people. You see, in the Old Testament, God commanded the priests of Israel to continually burn aromatic incense made from a blend of exotic spices on the golden altar inside the Holy of Holies. In other words, he gave them a specific recipe for the incense, just as he has given us specific prayers for us today. Prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of forgiveness, prayers of intercession, praise, adoration, and so on. For example, David prayed in Psalm 141. He says, may my prayer be set before you like incense. And if you remember in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, these prayers are so precious, they're so pleasant to God that he collects them in golden bowls. It reads, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Scripture tells us that our prayers are significant and that the Lord Jesus, our high priest, presents them to the Father. He is the only one who is able to perform this high priestly task. He is the only one who is able to make our prayers pleasing to God. In other words, unless the Lord Jesus acts as our mediator, our prayers will not reach heaven. It will bounce off the ceiling. In and of itself, prayer is of no value unless the Lord Jesus, our high priest, presents them before God. And we don't trust in our prayers to determine whether God will answer our prayers or not. 
we trust in the God to whom we pray, don't we? To answer our prayers. And he does so because of his son who mediates on our behalf. And we see it here as God responds to the prayers of the martyrs who had been slain for the testimony of Christ. And similarly, he also responds to the prayers of the church on earth. This is John's assurance that when God's people on earth pray, as they suffer for the sake of the gospel, that their prayers will be heard. And the church of John's time was under persecution, and this would have brought him assurance that God does and he will answer their prayers. So also with us, it's Jesus who makes our prayers acceptable. It's Jesus who makes our prayers effective before God. He adds his own perfect intercession to them and God is pleased to hear and answer because of his son. But it's not our prayers in and of itself that moves the Lord to answer them. It is the fact that Jesus acts as our intercessor and he makes them acceptable before God. I haven't preached for two services in the morning for a while, so my throat is not standing up to it. <clears throat> but friends, here's the encouragement to pray. Our faith in Christ will move us to prayer, wouldn't it? Whether we have great faith or our faith is weak. God hears our prayer. He hears us as we cry to him and bring our cares to him. And you can speak to God even if you don't have the right words. Or you cannot string a sentence together. Even then your prayers are heard. <clears throat> heard because Jesus, who knows your heart and your mind, and who can read your thoughts, is able to present your prayers to God and intercede on your behalf. So don't ever not pray because you think you may not know how or that you may not be able to express your prayers adequately. What does the Bible tell us? What does Paul tell us in Romans 8? We all know Romans 8, 28 following. But do you know Romans 8, 26 and 27? It says this, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see it there? Our groanings are taken by the Spirit. Our feelings that we cannot express are taken by the Spirit of Jesus and presented before the throne of God. God delights in your prayers as you come to him and simply bring to him the things on your mind, whatever that might be. However big or small, you might consider the issue to be God is interested in your trivia. So tell him and he will answer. But now, something else I want to stress that stands out from the passage is the fact that when God's time is right, that he will bring about our answer to our prayers. You know, we want things to happen immediately, don't we? And we wonder why on earth our prayers aren't answered. We've been praying about it for days, weeks, months, years. And yet it doesn't seem that God is answering. Well, notice what this uh, passage tells us. 
Notice that the censer is held until the time when the prayers are filled before God brings judgment. In other words, there were prayers held by the Lord, the prayers of the saints that were crying out to God until it was time to bring about this judgment. The prayers of the saints were finally being answered. God hears and answers the prayers of his people in his time. Ever thought that the things you prayed about haven't been answered? Do you remember Zechariah in Luke chapter 1? He was praying for a child for years. And it seemed like the answer didn't come. And as an old man, the angel came to him and said, God has answered your prayer. And he probably thought, what prayer? It's been probably 30 years since I prayed that prayer. You see, God in, acts in his own time, according to his purposes, according to his will. He's designed it that our prayers play a part in accomplishing his will, both in our lives and in the world at large, in his time. So don't write the argument, as some do in Christian circles, that because God is sovereign, prayer changes nothing. It's not prayer that changes things, it's God who does in his own time. So keep on in prayer, no matter what you're praying about. Don't give up. There are many uh, illustrations throughout history that speak about this very truth, how people have prayed and prayed and prayed, and finally God has answered, even perhaps after they've died. And it's not prayer that changes things, it's God who does in his own time. And one of the mysteries of God's sovereignty and our involvement and actions in the plan of God is that he uses our prayers in order to accomplish his will. There are numerous statements in scripture that tell us that God answers prayer, that our prayers move the Lord to answer and bring about his purpose and will, and yet it doesn't change God's decrees. Rather, he uses our prayers to bring about the outcome of his will or to accomplish his purposes. But not only that, you see, the reason God has designed it in this way, or one of the reasons he's designed it in this way, is to deepen your faith in him, to keep you praying, so that you might be dependent on him, and say to him, Lord, I'm crying to you, please answer my prayer. And that could go on for days and weeks and years. And so please take note of what those verses speak about in regards to this. And then secondly and finally, the next truth that arises from the text, I believe, is that warnings are intended by God to move people to repentance. That is why there are warnings here, and they're not totally complete until we get to the bowls in lighter chapters. This is the theology of the first four trumpet warnings. Why give us all these details about natural disasters, wars and volcanoes and so on? It seems a bit excessive, doesn't it? After all, it, we seem to be coping, it, we, even though most of these things have taken place and are taking place in our day and time. We've been through wars, we've been through natural disasters, and we still enjoy life as best we can. So why worry about all this stuff that's mentioned here? We are still quite happy in what we do and the way we live our lives. 
Well, there's a reason for it. Jesus, when he spoke of these things like wars and rumors of wars, said that these things but ha must happen. But then he said something important. He said, but the end is not yet. So don't miss those words. Wars and rumors of wars, these must happen, but the end is not yet. The end is still to come. So yes, we face and we cope with these natural disasters and tsunamis and so on and so forth, but that's, there's a design behind it. In other words, the reason why the end is yet to come is because God is giving people time to repent, time to turn from their sin and unbelief and find forgiveness through Christ before it's too late. The disasters and sufferings brought upon people as the four trumpets highlight have been and they are happening and they will continue to happen in history until Jesus comes again. We are in the great tribulation and that's why Jesus highlights it in his revelation to John. It's so that readers can sit up and take note and in seeing these things unfold in history that we realize that God's word is true, that Jesus will keep his word and judgment will come. Judgment will come as sure as night follows day. So the purpose of portraying these judgments as John does is twofold, isn't it? Firstly, it's to say to God's people that in the midst of all that you're facing with natural disasters and pain and suffering and so on, you will be kept by Christ. He will keep you till the end. But there's another reason why it's said as it is in Scripture. And that is that those who are still in their sin and without God in their lives, that unless they repent, they will not be saved. They will face the judgment in its full force. So where do you stand in regard to this? Do you think that all this stuff about catastrophes, natural disasters, uh, the wrecking of trade ships, wars, the cutting of water supplies and so on are well ho-hum? Well, if you do, the trumpet warnings are designed for you because you ignore it at your own peril. I referred to the eruption of Vesuvius in AD 79 in Pompeii. A Roman administrator and a poet known as young, the younger Pliny tells of some of the events which took place when Vesuvius erupted because Pliny was an eyewitness to it. The people, he says, were caught unprepared. They had not given heed to the earth tremors of the previous few days prior to Vesuvius erupting. But one particular individual who's mentioned in the Bible was killed in that volcano. Luke records in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 24, on how the Apostle Paul was brought as a prisoner before Felix, the governor, and his wife Drusilla. Drusilla was Felix's third wife. She was the daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. Her father had killed James, the brother of Jesus. Her great uncle beheaded John the Baptist. Her grandfather murdered all the baby boys during the birth of the Lord Jesus. But that's not all, because Felix had taken Drusilla from her husband and with the aid of a Cypriot magician, he had seduced her and got her for himself. Secular history records this. And so Luke, the author of the book of Acts, tells us that for the first time, Paul the prisoner is brought before Felix. 
And what does Paul do? He shares his testimony with Felix. Several days later, Felix uh, hears Paul again. Paul is brought before him again. And this time, Felix has his wife, Drusilla, whom he had taken from another man. So what does Paul do? What would you do? You're standing before an authority figure who can keep you in prison for the rest of your life. Paul preaches the gospel to them. And what is Paul's first point? He has three points. I think Paul might have been a Presbyterian. But no, that's not true. <laughs> he has three points. His first point is righteousness. Not a good way to start, is it? But then he doesn't soften up because his next point is self-control. And then to drive it home, his final point is the judgment to come. Not a good way to make friends and influence people. Well, it's true to say that wherever the gospel is preached, that there are those who respond in one of three ways. There will be those who accept the gospel, who embrace the gospel. There will be those who reject the gospel and those who procrastinate and say, I'll think about it some other time. I'm enjoying my life too much now. That was Felix's response. He says to Paul, you can find this in Acts chapter 24, that's enough for now, Paul. You may leave. And when I find it convenient, I will send for you. What's he saying? Not now, Paul. A little later, perhaps. I'll have a think about it. I'll decide at a more convenient time. You see, the real tragedy of Felix's life was not that he postponed making a judgment about the Apostle Paul, but that he postponed making a judgment about the Lord Jesus and the Gospel. And Felix had a great deal going for him. He was well acquainted with Christianity. He knew Paul was innocent. And most of all, Felix knew that he was a sinner. And I say that because we are told that he was afraid when Paul, when Paul spoke of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Yet he does not respond. He postpones his decision. And with that, he passes from the page of Acts. He passes from history and from life itself. But what's interesting is Felix's wife, Drusilla. History records that in ID 79, she went on a holiday with her son to Pompeii. And there at a party, they wined and they dined and they danced. And while they were doing that, there was a distant rumble which became an engulfing roar. And Vesuvius took Drusilla and her son into eternity. She went from dancing to judgment in a moment of time. She chose to ignore the call of the gospel to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The trumpets keep sounding throughout history and they warn of judgment. Are you going to ignore it? And not give heed to the warnings to come to Christ in repentance and faith if you haven't done that? Or will you turn your back on sin and embrace the gospel, embrace the Lord Jesus in the gospel? You may be thinking that God is harsh in permitting or sending these judgments upon the world. But that's not the case. God isn't harsh. 
It's we who are sinners. It's we who've offended him. It's we who've rebelled against him. We break his laws. We sin each day and we deserve his judgment. But the fact is that he's made it possible for us to escape judgment, to be free from it by embracing Christ into our lives because he took the punishment that we deserve. He took the judgment that's due for us. And that's what we remember as we come to the table this morning. That Jesus died so we can find forgiveness and salvation through it. So come to him if you haven't already. Seek his mercy, seek his forgiveness, and you will find peace with God. But do it today. Because today is your day of opportunity. Tomorrow may be too late. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we have considered eternal things and we recognize how much you love us in Christ. And yet, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who hasn't responded to the gospel, it is my earnest prayer, it is the earnest prayer of those who are in Christ that you reach out and touch their lives and bring them to yourself. And we pray, Father, as we come to the table now, that you'll be pleased to minister to us. That through the symbols of bread and wine, that you would implant upon our hearts and minds the cost at which our salvation, our redemption was purchased. And that we might respond in giving glory to Jesus who died, the Lamb who was slain for our salvation. We pray in his name. Amen.